Hello and welcome to Found. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington, and I'm here with the wild artisanal strawberry to my garden variety. Boring old strawberry. <laughs> you are boring. My name's Jordan Crook. Hey, Jordan. This week... I don't actually think you're boring. <laughs> I was just going to take it in stride, but thank you for specifying that. So, you know the podcast. This is the podcast where we bring you the stories behind the startups. This week, we're talking to Irving Fain from Bowery Farming, which is the largest vertical farming company in the U.S., and they develop farms in urban spaces to grow produce locally that's better for people and the planet. So before we get started with Irving, just want to remind everybody to like, subscribe, rate, review, give us all the best marks in whatever podcast thing of your choice. That really helps us here on Found, and it just brings a lot of joy to me and Jordan both. Right, Jordan? We're basically joyless, so anytime you can even do a little bit, it's a huge Just to give us a little top up, and then we can go about our lives for another day, but then we need another top up. (laughs) (laughs) All right, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the farming zone with Irving. Hey, Irving, how's it going? How you doing? Good, good. So we're thrilled to have you. We, me and Jordan, I think, know about Bowery Farming, but our listeners might not. speaking for me. I'm speaking for you, as I always do. Go ahead, Jordan. It's fine. (laughs) Do you know about Bowery Farming? I know. You have a new facility in near where I live, in Bethlehem, right? Uh, Yeah. You live in Bethlehem, or close to No, I do not. I live in New Hope, but close enough, like in terms of the likelihood that I live near a Bowery Farms location. This is true. This is true. Interesting in there. Yeah. That's great. But just to take a step back for our listeners who may not be familiar, do you want to give a, just a high-level overview of what Bowery Farming does? Yeah, absolutely. So Bowery, we're building large warehouse-scale smart indoor farms. And in our farms, we stack our crops from the floor to the ceiling. We grow food under lights that mimic the spectrum of the sun. And we grow in a totally controlled and contained environment. That means we can grow fresh protected produce 365 days of the year, independent of weather and independent of seasonality. And on top of it, it's actually produce that is completely pesticide-free, agrochemical-free food. We grow more than 100 times plus more productive than a square foot of farmland outside. And we use a small fraction of water compared to traditional agriculture. And and what makes that all possible is, is a lot of the technology that underlies the business. So we employ a substantial amount of robotics and automation that we design and develop. And then we've built what we call the Bowery operating system, which is the combination of software and hardware and computer vision and AI that manages and maintains the entirety of our operation. Awesome. Okay. So pretty good explanation of like why it's a super serious tech company on top of being an agricultural company. But I, one question I have just kind of off the bat is like, there's a reason people grew stuff it was easier right it's easier to do it the other way to do well, it the sun the sun the sun right? really helps like that's a big one it's that a, one helps it's like probably number one because <laughs> it's the free energy we all depend right. on but then on the other hand if i think of another metaphor if i think of like a filming metaphor it's way oh, easier yeah. and cheaper to do in a sound studio than it is on location so uh, yeah. is bowery like the 
sound studio of the farming world? So it's an interesting analogy. And Jordan says something that's worth us digging into as well, just about kind of free sun, which is, of course, true. The sun is free in principle, but actually there's lots of embedded cost in the system that relies on the sun being free. That cost just lives in different places. And a lot of that actually ties to the fact that what we're doing, and this is where the the metaphor of sound stages breaks down, is what we're really doing at Bowery is, of course, reimagining farming. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, if you've seen our farms, they don't look anything like the farms we probably all grew up reading uh, books about. It's not old McDonald's farm. That's yeah. there's no question about that. But it's young McDonald's farm. <laughs> it, it is the new McDonald's farm. That's right. Uh, and and, uh, and and what makes the the reimagination of farming important is it really is enabling us to reinvent the entirety of the supply chain. And so building a new supply chain that's a lot simpler, it's much safer, it's much more sustainable, and it can provide much more surety of supply itself. And the reason that's possible is we've uncoupled what's been the determinant variable in in food supply chains for as long as you can remember, which is only certain food and crops grew at certain times of the year in certain places. Right. And so we've adapted to that reality as the world has grown, population's grown, tastes have changed and grown as well. And that's really what we're changing, right? It's, it's this idea, to your point, and this is where the analogy of the film studio does hold true. You don't necessarily anymore need to go out to the Wild West to film a Western, right? You can do it in the deep Brooklyn area, or you can go do it in a soundstage in, you know, really anywhere. You could go mm-hmm. up to the northern Canada, for that matter, as far from the West as you could kind of be. That changed the way you could make film in the same way that... This has completely changed the way you can grow food, but most importantly, the way you can actually build a supply chain that is really built for today, not the supply chain that we've sort of inherited from decades. So then I'm like the definition of a noob when it comes to climate stuff, right? So like, I'm not a genius here, but I know a a few things. And one is that regenerative agriculture is not just like getting us back to net neutral, but it's actually beneficial, right? Like it's a net positive to do that with the soil. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely fair. Mm. Absolutely fair. So then let's say that that's true, right? And it also accomplishes a lot of the same stuff that we're talking about with supply chain, maybe not to the same extent, but it like moves the progress bar further along in terms of like, I can do multiple deliveries of whatever you might need to grow these things and pick up these things at a relatively similar time or in a simpler way than going to 25 different locations for 25 different crops. So I'm just curious how you think about that, right? Like where that sits on the spectrum and how you guys approach that as like another system that's being put forward to like reimagine farming. And the the first answer to, to the question, Jordan, is there are a number of different solutions and approaches that are required to solve, certainly when we're looking at the climate crisis in total, and that extends well beyond food and agriculture. Mm -hmm. But even if you're Mm -hmm. just looking within food and agriculture's impact around climate, which is substantial, by the way, just to give you a sense of it, a third of global and about 30% of the, the European Union greenhouse gas emissions all come from the food system. Right. So if you just think about yeah. like one third of all greenhouse gas emissions are coming from you know food and agriculture system at large, changes in that system itself are critical. And the notion that one approach, you know, certainly not one company, can, can provide that solution just doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. So we need an enormous variety and diversity of approaches and solutions in the coming years and in the coming decades to reverse a lot of the problems that we've created over the prior decades. 
that's, of course, in the way we grow food. That also comes down to things like we, we need to eat less meat. We need to make animal agriculture substantially more sustainable across a number of different matters. I'm a big believer in cultured meat and the technologies that exist there as well. We need to think about inputs that are being put on crops and how can you find biological inputs versus synthetic inputs. And so all of these different components of the solution and regenerative agriculture is another one of those pieces all have to become a part of the puzzle. And then they have to be paired with you know energy solutions and transportation solutions and everything else that gets right. talked about. That's how you have to tackle climate. And so it's not a zero some game. It's that we need a we need as many shots on goal here as we can find to build the system that we all need for tomorrow. And what we have today is a food system that is in transition. Yeah. No, I think yeah. Irving, when you're talking about kind of the advantages that Barry has over like traditional farming methods, and now when you're talking about that, like they have multiple approaches. A lot of what you built obviously stacks, right? As other solutions come online. So as you do like more clean power generation, that That's means right. your solution is more and more efficient right. and That's right. better, right? Yeah. In fact, we actually power all of our farms today with 100% renewable energy. Oh, great. That's okay. really important. And, yeah. and, and actually, if you go back to the conversation about the supply chain, what we've really done is taken a supply chain that unfolds over you know thousands of miles and you know numerous different players, and we've collapsed it essentially into a building that's close to the communities that we're serving. Mm-hmm. And then that entire building is powered, and everything inside of it is powered by renewable energy. And so even if today you went out and said, hey, I want to power today's supply chain with renewable energy, I believe eventually we'll be able to do that. But you can't do that today because there's yeah. lots of components of that supply chain where they just don't even have an option. Yeah. And so there's, there's a real right. advantage in that. The other thing I would say, Jordan, to the, to the other part of the question you asked is regenerative farming is fantastic in lots of ways because treating our soil in a more healthy way is critical. Rotating crops in a more productive and effective way is critical. And there's lots of folks out there who are you know enormous advocates of this and, and really leading the way. There is, however, a challenge whenever you're growing food outside, which is, you know, unfortunately, we're living in an increasingly uncertain and unreliable world. Mm-hmm. And that uncertainty and unreliability is coming in multiple forms. Like, first of all, the climate unreliability is enormous. You know, an example, at least that hits home for me because I'm a huge hot sauce fan, is uh, if you haven't seen this, like there is a legitimate shortage right now of sriracha. Oh, sriracha, yeah. Yeah. But I didn't think that was just climate related. I thought there was some like cool personal drama going on. No, like, the I, guy was upset and they hiked prices and he was like, you, I'll keep my peppers for myself. <laughs> Is that just something I heard that was totally untrue? So, so you are the reporter. Of I'm the a journalist. Two of us, I was going to say, I was like, you're the journalist <laughs> of the two of us. So, so I would say that maybe there is some truth in that. However, the driving force of this, without question, was is climate. the fact that yeah, there is a massive shortage of peppers that are coming out of California and Arizona and Texas and the areas that we grow them. And why? Because we're dealing with a thousand year drought yeah. in that part of the country, and you know, plants need water to grow. And so you're, you have this incredibly unreliable climate around us, and we are finding more and more of these disruptions happening every single year. And so even if you're growing food outdoors in a more responsible way, there's no guarantee that the external variables that you rely on are even going to be there. Right. Then there's the other side of this, which is what we're seeing right now unfold with uh, Russia and Ukraine mm-hmm. and this understanding that you know, we've built a, a really efficient and wide global network that provides us with not just the food we need, but actually the inputs to grow the food we need. Yeah. But that network relies on other countries, other parts of our country, other players across the world that may be less reliable than historically they were. You're seeing right now the world recognize, hey, food is national security and sovereignty. It's not just what we need to eat. 
there, yeah. there's a bigger picture here too. So you see, this is similar to Jordan's question about regenerative farming, but like you also see a lot of work towards building more adaptive, more resilient crops, right? To address some of those issues you're talking about, which would serve a couple of purposes, could serve like changing climate in the places where they're already growing and could serve being able to grow new crops in places where you previously couldn't if you were trying to do onshoring. But it sounds like it's another case of like, yes, but we want to do all of these things. And I mean, a second question to that would be like, do you work from that angle too? Do you look at modifying plants to grow better in the circumstances that you want to do to increase efficiency? It's a fantastic question, Daryl. And actually, it's one of the things that gets me sort of the most excited about what we're doing at Bowery. You know, when, it, when we look at what we're building, it's really the ability to provide food wherever it's needed. Like mm-hmm. We can grow food wherever it is needed. So that already is a distinction from today's system. If you pull back from that, what 10,000 years of agriculture has been about, I mean, all the way back from the Tigris and Euphrates was how do we manage against a set of our externalities that are out of our control, right? And so the first big invention was like, hey, we can pick seeds and we can actually plant them in one place. And so we all don't have to run around and find food. We can actually just live in this one place around the food, the seeds that we're planting. And then we started to say, oh, wow, we can tend those seeds better and tend those crops better. And we got tools and then we mechanized those tools and call it mid-century in the 1900s. We said, oh, wow, like what the world wanted post-World War II was abundance of cheap food that was produced quickly and efficiently. Yeah. And that's where we started to say, hey, well, what if we start creating, you know, pesticides and insecticides and herbicides and then also fertilizers and these other chemicals? And then sort of the penultimate answer to that was, well, we can actually start to play with the genetics of the crops themselves, all in the service of saying, how do we control against things that we can't control? Mm -hmm. And so at Bowery, what we've done is we flipped the equation on its head. And so now all of these externalities are actually controllable. And there's something really exciting about that, because when you look at what crops have been grown outside, it's a reasonably narrow variety of crops. And the reason is what matters outside above all else is, does the crop resist drought? Does this crop resist pests? And will it travel very long distances and oftentimes long periods of time and show up and look good at your store? Yeah. And none of those variables impact us at Bowery. And so we can go back and we have relationships and partnerships now with seed companies across the world and look decades back into their seed banks and into oh, their germplasm yeah. and find varieties and flavors and tastes of crops that you just would never be able to try growing outdoors because they don't meet those core three criteria that I mentioned before. Right. So before you even start doing breeding and these other work, which is really fascinating and exciting in and of itself, just the ability to no longer worry about transportation drought and pests opens up an enormous canvas to start to say, wow, like there's crops that are fantastic that we wouldn't be able to try were it not for this new canvas that we can provide about it. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm very excited now to try like just the most fragile, just like it will, if you look at it wrong, it will wilt and and disappear into dust. But I'm like, you know what a good example of this is, is a strawberry, right? Strawberries are incredibly tender and are incredibly fragile in that way. I mean, there are are folks who will fly strawberries truly from California at certain times a year because they can't actually even just make the trip across the country in a truck or a train or, or anywhere else. And that's the only way to get strawberries to other parts of the country. I mean, it's an incredibly fragile fruit. And, and the other part of it is we've become sort of accustomed as people in, in across the world that a strawberry is just a strawberry, yeah. right? Oh, that's a strawberry. And so what we just did is about a couple of months ago, we released strawberries as our first fruiting crop, which is going to expand beyond there. And we released it in a two pack. 
And so there's actually two different varieties. There's a garden variety, which is a better tasting version of the strawberry that we eat on a regular basis. And then there's a wild variety, which sort of is similar to like this European frise berry. It has this like Concord grape kind of jammy texture. Oh. And when you eat them side by side, you immediately like, wow, these are completely different. They're both strawberries, but they taste completely different. Mm-hmm. And that kind of genetic diversity exists across every crop out there. We just don't get to experience it on average as consumers because, again, of the supply chain that's been built and then the limitations that it provides for all the benefits it's provided us as well. Yeah. I got to remember to make sure that Danny doesn't listen to this episode because we already spend way too much on strawberries. (laughs) Oh, my God. Year round, they're always in the fridge. I'm like, these cost $12. Like, get these out of here. It's February. (laughs) Guess what, Danny? Those are trash. Those are the They don't even taste good. (laughs) Well, that's the problem. It's it's like if you you want to enjoy something like a strawberry that you love or a great tomato, that makes total sense. But, man, it should taste good, right? Wait, okay. So I want to, like, just... Pull a Jordan real quick and just shift totally. (laughs) So something I've been thinking about a lot when you were talking about like multiple approaches are necessary. You could build the greatest technology, like the most seamless solution with all pros and no cons, but you'd still be going up against a massive global system, right? Like at some point there is a clash between like who exists in the status quo and this new disruptive innovative technology. And Bowery is like pretty well established, but is certainly not alone. There's like an army of companies that are doing the same thing in that climate ag tech space. Yeah. And we talked so to like, Chef's um, Venture, right? Which is very similar Cook's on the venture. Cook's Venture on the chicken side, right? With the heritage breeds that mm-hmm. they bring yep, Right. Yep, yep, yep. They do like regenerative and then they biodiverse diet and yep. like white label. It's like, you know, it's cool. It's all synergistic, as they would say in the corporate world. But like- There are a bunch of them, right? Like I've talked to people who are doing like genetic alteration of bees so that they're more resilient, so that they can pollinate more plants. You could go up and down the list, Misfits Market. And sure, they're competitors, but most of the time you're all working towards a very similar goal and need powerful negotiating kind of stance or positioning in order to clash against that existing system. So as the informed naive person in the group, does it make sense to band together? Like, oh, grocery stores or whoever it is in this system that you're clashing against to be like, we're all in this together. You get all of this business, right? Well, or well whatever. first off, because you know, I think you're making an important point. None of the technologies you just talked about, I would even think of as remotely competitive to us. Right. I, would, I would agree right. completely. They're complementary and working towards the same solution that we are. And this goes back to the, you know, there's no one silver bullet to this problem. There's lots and lots of lead bullets. And all of those components that you talked about are critical pieces to this puzzle that we're working towards. So that, that sort of unity in, in mission, I actually do think exists. Now, it's in its nascency. And part of its reason it's in its nascency is because a lot of this industry is in its nascency. I mean, when I got started at Bowery, yeah. the amount of companies and sort of focus on agriculture was pretty limited. I mean, there mm-hmm. was Climate Corp that had sold to Monsanto. There was a company Blue River Technology, which actually ultimately sold to John Deere. There was other folks who were working at SAS on the farm. You know, there were people in the space, but nothing close to what it looks like today. I mean, there was you know 50 some odd billion dollars in 2021 invested into this category, which I actually think is a great thing because this mm-hmm. is a place where we need a lot of innovation. And, and so you're starting to see innovation in food and agritech speed up at a, at a rate and pace that we haven't seen before. And so the opportunity to work together is emerging right now. The other side to this is we're in the midst of a food system that's in transition today. I would argue to you that 
there's a lot of this that just isn't a choice. So just take lettuce in for an example. And we, we grow well beyond lettuces. Commercially, we focus on lettuces and herbs right now. But when you just look at lettuces, 90% of U.S. lettuce production basically is concentrated in California and Arizona. Mm-hmm. And so I think we, we all sort of know what's going on in California and Arizona right now as it relates to the drought inevitably, those are going to be two very challenged places from a growing perspective and likely going to become increasingly more challenged. And so this is a different scenario than, hey, I've made a better telephone and somebody looking and saying, well, I can just use my old telephone as well. That works just fine too. This is a situation where the underlying system that, that we've relied on, the global reliance we have on one another and the heavy reliance we have on, you know, places that are incredibly unreliable now from a climate perspective, it's forcing us to make a change whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. Right. But I mean, I guess maybe I'm like caring too much about this, but that type of coalition, because like maybe right for you, you're like, I don't need too much negotiation power. Like the earth is doing it for me. You don't have another choice. But there are a bunch of startups like in and around you that are small and maybe are like would benefit insanely from being like, okay, well, you can sell our crops in your grocery stores, but like you also need to use this like forecasting tool for supply and demand. So you're not wasting food in the shelves and like blah, blah, blah. Maybe it shouldn't be like a complete package deal, but you know, as the behemoth in the space, and maybe it's not fair to call you a behemoth, but like you do have a leg up in that climate space. You're early. Bowery's big. Impossible's big. Beyond's big. There are a handful that are really getting to that beyond growth stage. And the cues come from you. Is it something that you spend a lot of time thinking about, like how you can help the ecosystem of startups around you? So it's something we're spending more and more time thinking about now. And I would say, you know, we are spending time and even more than just us as a set of startups, you're starting to see policymakers, you know, certainly in the U.S., but even around the country, starting to take a much greater interest in in what the future of food and agriculture is going to look like and how they can be supporting the future of food and agriculture. And that can't just be large established companies alone. It also has to be the newest and the earliest of technologies that one day themselves become large and established. I mean, I was talking to an entrepreneur last week working in the bee space, as you talked about, which are more effective and efficient pollinating bees that have resilience to some of the challenges that we're seeing out in the bee populations across the country and across the world right now, which are declining incredibly rapidly, which is a huge problem because mm-hmm. bees are needed for pollination. Yeah. So that type of partnership and cooperation is something I'm, I'm actually really excited about. And one of the things for me that's most exciting, just as not just an entrepreneur, but a citizen of the world is seeing the amount of innovation that's happening in this space now and just how many different areas and ways people are thinking about solving problems that even a few years ago just weren't on people's radar and also the fact that there's now real mandates and interest in putting capital behind those ideas as well because that capital piece is important to supporting that innovation in its early stages. The other piece to this puzzle though that that is critical to remember is consumers are an important part of this piece too. This isn't about forcing change on a set of retailers. Because if you think about a retailer, right, what's your job? It's to sell the things that the customers that you have want. Yeah. And you you have the rise now of a consumer that has much more awareness and understanding of the challenges in climate. About the, They're asking questions. Where's my food coming from? How's it grown? How's it made? What's in it? What's on it? And they're demanding better. They're demanding better from food companies and they're demanding better from retailers. Yeah. And so that's also and from regulators, which is yeah. like the other motivator on that side too, right? Because yep. regulators are essentially retailers, except you know for votes instead of dollars, right? Yeah, so, yeah. that's right. Those pieces together, I think you, you just can't underestimate the pull from the consumer side and its impact, Jordan, as well on bringing that technology forward. It, it's not enough alone, but it's powerful. Yeah. So Irving, I'm going to pull Jordan now. 
and go in a completely different Ooh. direction. <laughs> Let's see how you pull it off. Do you have as much grace in class as I do? I don't think so. It's an, it's an awkward transition. But, <laughs> you, you know, you've been doing this now, I think, nearly eight years or so, right, at Bowery. But you have a long history before that of, like, being a founder previously and also working in, like, completely different industries. So, I, you know, one of the things we like to talk about here is kind of how you came to what you came to. So can you give a bit of an explanation of, you know, why you're in this now when especially your previous experience was like much more, you know, marketing and omnichannel, you know, loyalty products and stuff like that. And now you've arrived at the Vertical Farms. Yeah, it all dates back to my time as a child, right? So it, it, <laughs> it, it, Isn't it, everything with all of us? Yes, right. But in truth, you know, I have wanted to be, and let's call it, I've been an entrepreneur since I was a little kid, you know, mm-hmm. before I knew what the word was or how to spell it. I was just finding myself into any little hustle I, I could ever find. I mean, I remember as a really young kid, there was a store called Harrison's down the road, and I would go down there and I'd buy these little rubber animals for a dime and I'd bring them home and I'd merchandise them in this Tupperware and then I'd bring them to school and I'd sell them for a quarter the, the next oh, day. Oh, here's so, the, it's the local drop shipping. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew they were a wholesaler? Um, and so uh, I was sort of attracted. I don't know why, right? You know, as a nature, as a nurturer, I don't know what it was, but I, I was attracted to, to just being an entrepreneur building and creating from a young age and I've been doing it forever. And But I've been working in and around tech for, you know, call it about, you know, 15, 20 years. And what... I've always believed is technology is, is a real powerful driver for change. Mm-hmm. And, and it can work towards solving hard problems, work towards solving important problems. And I started off, I, I helped build iHeartRadio as a part of Clear Channel. I was you know, a large old radio company that was there to figure out, hey, what's, what's digital going to mean for traditional radio? And the iPhone came out and this idea of the App Store emerged, which is kind of wild to think about that being yeah. new now. I saw an opportunity to, to aggregate all this incredible content and, and iHeartRadio was born. I was great experience. I learned a ton from that. But I wanted to be an entrepreneur, not, not an intrapreneur. And so I left mm-hmm. and I started my, my first company called CrowdTwist, which was an enterprise software business. So we raised a bunch of venture, you know, built that over six years. It was a really interesting marketing technology business. Again, I learned a lot about just building and creating. And working with huge brands there too, right? Yeah, we were working, you know, we sold to companies like Pepsi and L'Oreal and yeah. Nestle and Procter and & Gamble and Tom Shoes, you know, a lot of folks in the retail space and the CPG space. It was a lot about customer relationships, customer data, uh, it was kind of driving change in a, in a business, you know, customer loyalty. We all know it's like proverbial punch card, right? Walk into a coffee shop and I get a punch when I buy a coffee. And the kind of the premise was like, well, yeah, the, the buying of the coffee matters, but there's so many other things around these big brands that matter to yeah. your interactions socially and mobile and all these other places. So we're measuring that in totality. So intellectually, it was really interesting to me, but there was a part of me that wanted to work on something where I had a much greater personal passion. And also I wanted to work towards solving a problem that I felt was a problem kind of more broadly focused on, you know, big societal challenges. So I left and, you know, I stayed on the board. We ultimately sold the business to Oracle. Um, so, so it was a great outcome. Mm-hmm. But I started to kind of shift my focus to some of these kind of bigger pieces. And I looked at like trash and recycling. I looked at plastics. I was looking at agriculture. And I looked at agriculture really broadly at first. So I was looking at drones on the farm and satellite imagery. And some people said, oh, you know, SAS, why don't you go do SAS on the farm? And uh, I just, it didn't feel like that was the fit for me. There were better people capable of building that. What drove me initially to agriculture was just the fact that it's the largest consumer of resources globally by a wide, wide margin. You know, 70% of the world's water every year goes to ag. We put about 6 billion pounds of pesticides down annually across the world. And we've lost 30% of our arable farmland in just the last 40 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So you've got a system that's under stress. You've got a growing population that needs more food. And then all the while, 70 to 80% of the population is going to be living in and around cities in the next 30 years. So there's this real urbanization. And so I got really obsessed with this question of how do you get fresh food to urban environments? How do you do that in a way that's not only more efficient, but is much more sustainable as well? And that was sort of the real kernel and the beginning of what ultimately led to Bowery. Cool. And But was it weird for you to get into this business where there's such a physical infrastructure component? Because like nothing you did previously kind of had that ingredient, right? I mean, it was a change in so many ways. I mean, you said before, you know, like I didn't grow up on a farm. I'm not a farmer. That wasn't, that wasn't my background. In fact, my background was in technology more than anything and building different technology companies, which was actually an advantage. I actually oftentimes think naivety is a real advantage as an entrepreneur. That's right? also because- our slogan here at TechCrunch. So <laughs> cover for how we don't know shit about anything. <laughs> but in truth, sometimes when you don't know something about something, you'll ask questions that yeah. are fantastic questions and the right questions that someone who knows lots about something would never ask because they would always feel like they know the answer, right? Yeah. And, and and your willingness to sort of bumble into rooms that nobody in their right mind would bumble into is what oftentimes unearths the most exciting and interesting opportunities. Mm-hmm. I came in with sort of a, a naive mind in some ways. I understood the problem. That I just taught myself everything I could around agriculture, around food, as much as I could learn. I read you know more USDA papers than you could imagine. And I actually loved the physical world component of it, mm. right? Like, I loved the fact, like, so what, there was something that was always challenging for me in the software space of this, like, ethereal product you were building that you could never, like, really put your hands on and touch and feel. And what do you love about it? Well, you write bad code and you refactor it in an hour and boom, you're back, right? You can't refactor a uh, Bowery farm in an hour. Like, it, there's a, <laughs> but you can, like, walk into it and, like, eat a strawberry, exactly. which like, yeah. I mean, yes. that's wild. Like exactly. so many founders out there are like, yep, I'm going to go sit back down at my computer. Yep. And you're like, I'm going to eat some lettuce. I'm going to actually the, eat my work. And, and not only eating it, but just walking into a farm and standing there and saying, like looking at it. And, and, and there's lots that we can't see, you know, from the Bowery operating system, but just having a physical manifestation of what we're working on. I think it's rewarding for everybody here at Bowery. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the other part of it that's interesting as well is, you know, software is incredibly important to our lives today. I mean, it's become obviously just, you know, a, a table stakes in, in most everything. But sort of the outside world's understanding of a lot of software businesses is, is, is oftentimes somewhat limited. Whereas mm-hmm. you talk about what we do at Bowery and, and within, you know, seconds, people, their eyes will often light up and they're like, I understand that. I get that. I'm excited about that. That's an important solution to a problem that I care about. And there's something really nice nice as well for just there to be like a different way of just kind of grasping the concept itself. I mean, in my last business, everyone kind of understood loyalty and they kind of nodded along and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was nice you raised some money. You know, they're they more excited about the raising of the <laughs> yeah. money than the thing we were doing. And people are genuinely excited about what we're doing here. And I think that that's motivating for everybody about it. Yeah. So you brought up raising money. I, I did want to know about that too, just because you had all that experience raising previously. Did it translate or because like we were talking about, it was such a shift. Was it really difficult when you were on the early off and going out and asking people for money to support this? There's no doubt that just having been in an entrepreneur previously and having started and run a company, it made a huge difference. Because I mean, you can imagine back in you know 2015 when I was first talking to people about this, this idea of like, hey, so I'm going to build farms and warehouses and stack yeah. the crops. I mean, people are like, what? <laughs> you know? And we spent a year and a half building and testing and iterating systems before I ever raised a dollar from people. 
But like, we didn't have some kind of huge farm to show somebody that just, uh, you know, we just didn't have that. Not only did it sound crazy, but you needed to have some level of credibility for somebody to be able to look at you and say, okay, I think they can do this, or at least I'm willing to take a shot that they can do this. And so having had experience beforehand, it certainly helped me do that. I think the other thing that, that really translated forward in the early days was the understanding of how important the relationship itself was with the early investors that you choose. Mm-hmm. So I just, knowing how kind of wild and wacky the idea sounded at the time, I invested a lot of time up front well before raising any money, just spending time with people who I knew, getting to know people who I didn't, talking about what I was working on, being really open about like, hey, here's the questions we're trying to answer. And by the way, I may end up coming back to you and saying, hey, we scrapped the idea because it just didn't seem like it was possible. Like We yeah, really looked yeah. at it from a first principle standpoint and we helped bring people along Partly also because this isn't something people knew about, right? They didn't know the five questions to ask us to see, figure out that this was a good idea. You can show up now with an enterprise software business and an investor can probably ask you five to 10 questions and with those answers can evaluate your business pretty quickly. Yeah, But on the other hand, it's a true big swing, right? So you track that kind of like that old school... Mm-hmm. investor yeah. mentality of like, wow, this is real. If this pays off, it's going to pay off massively. And it's also a huge risk. So that must be enticing to a certain category of investor. Daryl and I talk about the old school VCs as though we're 75 years old. <laughs> <laughs> have ever raised money or invested money. By, by the way, given the speed with which this industry is uh, moved, maybe we all are 75 years old <laughs> in, in, in tech years. Maybe yeah. maybe there's a new uh, measure. It's like dog years, but for tech. So I, I mean, we raised $6 million for for our Series A at, at CrowdTwist, and people were like, oh my God, that is so much money. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel the same. But, I, I, you know, Daryl, I, I think this is what venture capital is for in a lot of respects. Yeah, that yeah. for me is one of the things I love the most about seeing the diversity of investments people are making now. I mean, you're seeing space companies get funded, right? You're seeing, you know, electric vehicle companies. You're seeing these EV tall companies get funded. And and I get that sometimes people say, oh, how's that ever going to work? You know what? Some of it's not going to work. But that's okay because a lot of that financing is the point of the spear of innovation ultimately. It goes back to what we were talking about. You know, the Jordan was asking about all these different agricultural technologies. Like people are taking swings now at types of businesses that five or 10 years ago, no one would have ever put venture funding in. It was software, consumer internet. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, especially when you were starting this, like it was kind of coming out of the disillusionment phase, right? Like of the first green tech sort of like swing and miss. So that- Well, it was clear it was the clean tech bust, basically, yeah, that yes. you know, was the promise of that never delivered. Yeah. And did you have to contend with that at all? Or was it, were you kind of like, oh, well, we're adjacent to, but we're not really, it's not directly tied or what? I wouldn't say we contended with it as much. I think probably for two reasons. Number one, a little bit of time had passed, right? Yeah. So some of the sort of acuity of nerves had probably- the scars had healed over a bit. Yeah, exactly. There was a little mitigation of that. And then I, the second piece of it was there is still this distinction of like food and farming felt different than sort of like that kind of energy piece of a lot of what clean tech was. And for a lot of folks, when we were talking, they just hadn't heard or seen as much about food and and farming, but it didn't take long to say, oh yeah, this is a place that makes sense and requires a lot of innovation. I mean, that was one of the things that excited me. I had come from marketing tech where over the course of five or six years, I saw the landscape just explode. 
I mean, just so saturated. And then I look at, you know, here's agriculture, the oldest and the largest industry in the world. And, you know, sorry for the puns, which, by the way, there are lots of agricultural puns you learn when you work at, work in <laughs> agriculture. But the amount of green space that existed was enormous. Oh, my God, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> but it was true. There was so much of it amidst, like, a huge opportunity as well. And that, for me, was really exciting as well. And I think investors saw that, too. They said, wow, look how many places you can go. Look how enormous this category is. And then, you know, as you were saying, like, this is a place to take big swings, but that have enormous opportunities on the other side. Yeah. I think one thing I'm curious about now, like at the stage you're at now, is it more for you now about scale, about taking like, look what we've built and let's get it as many places as possible? Or is there still a lot of refinement on the model and a lot of like opportunity for new product development that you see in the future? What it has become is multi-pronged now. So whereas it was really about only kind of model refinement, iteration, we've really been believers in thoughtful scaling. That's been incredibly important to me at Bowery. And a big part of that is because we have to build farms. We were talking about these are physical locations. You can't refactor a farm. Yeah. And so you want to make sure you get it as right as you can, which by the way, you will never get it all right. You no. will always make mistakes and get things wrong, which I actually welcome that because it means we're taking risks ourselves, but you need to take smart and thoughtful risks, especially with that kind of capital, you know, being spent on farms. So that was our primary focus. Mm-hmm. Now that we have a model that we really see working, scaling that model forward is one part of the puzzle, but that innovative focus and effort will forever be a part of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Because we've really only begun to scratch the surface, not only in terms of the crops we can grow, because expanding that crop variety across many, many more crops is a huge point of focus for us. And that will involve changes in the battery operating system. That'll involve automation and robotics changes. Like That's critically important. But there's so much more optimization we can do even within our farms. Yeah. You know, continuing to make them more effective and more efficient and learning like better ways of building, better ways of running them. The day we stop that iteration and innovation is, is the day I probably we ride off into the sunset. And, and I, I can't imagine a day where that actually ends because there's just so much, there's so much more in front of us than where we've already gone. Nice. Yeah, I get that. I mean, talking to you and you've been at this eight years, you still seem, you know, as enthusiastic, as excited as I would imagine you are like day one or whatever. You sound very genuinely just interested in what comes next, which is not something you hear a lot of times from somebody a decade in. It's just, it's a fascinating problem. And and the other part for me that is just pretty cool to be a part of and watch is just, you have all these different people from different disciplines and experiences coming together to solve this common problem, yeah, right? So yeah. you, you go look at a room and there's a, you know, a plant biologist and plant pathologist sitting next to a data science engineer, sitting next to a you know, mechanical engineer and an electrical engineer and a supply chain expert and all sitting together working on this individual problem and like bringing that diversity together around this one common goal. I mean, it's really amazing to watch. It's exciting to see what comes from it. It's actually something that hasn't happened in agriculture really before. Yeah. And to have all that coming together, not around something that's in a university lab, but something that's shipping product. Yeah, which has been a hugely important component of, of what we're doing. It's a big part of why I started Bowery is if you can find an economic engine that functions on its own and at the same time generates a positive impact, you can create exponentially more impact than you know just an NGO or nonprofits or universities. It doesn't mean that there's not an important place in the ecosystem for those institutions. There absolutely is. But using that kind of economic engine to drive substantial change is really powerful. And I'm a big believer in just that principle in and of itself. Yeah, for sure. 
All right, Irving, I think we're just about out of time, but thanks so much. And we also believe in these ideas. We're good people, right, Jordan? (laughs) We're good people. We do our best. We do close to our best most of the time. We just help from the side. We're not like directly in it. Although, who knows? Maybe in the future, me and Jordan will start our own sustainable farming business. Let's not kid ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can certainly tell you whether you start a farm or not, you should come and visit one of ours because I think you'll you'll enjoy it. And it it doesn't look like the farms uh, that you drive by all the time. I was thinking you could maybe put together a tasting of like, the weirdest crops that we've never had access to. We have to. some weird ones. Wasabi arugula is, uh, is one that always that gets people. sounds yummy. Arugula is spicy on its own. I you love arugula. You're really, really speaking my language here. This yeah, is, this, this, is, this is one of those crops where you, you try and you're like, wow. A lot of people are like, oh, is this where wasabi comes from? You're like, no, no, no. Wasabi is a root. This is just an arugula plant. But it, it Okay, has- don't mansplain wasabi to people. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> Uh, so we, we've got a whole cadre of crops we could roll out. Start. We should start with the strawberries, though. All right. Yeah. Well, then let's call it a date. Deal. All right, Jordan, that was our conversation with Irving. We brought up a number of different companies in there. So he's clearly in good company, although they were pretty early. What do you think about the overall ag tech space and Bowery's role in it? I think it's really exciting. There are just, you know, for a while there, a few years ago, it was a lot of like, there's a sensor you can put on your farm and then there's a data platform. And I think those are cool and great. And like, that's awesome and drones and stuff. But I think there's just the solutions are getting so much more creative Mm -hmm. as we go. And so like, that's pretty cool. It gives me those vibes of like when I first started as a tech reporter of like, holy shit, this is really cool. Like ag tech kind of always gets me in that zone for some reason. Obviously it's like hugely important to the welfare of the planet. So I think that's cool. And I think Bowery Farming is a really interesting company. There's very sci-fi vibes to it. I do, I don't know why this is like caught in my throat, but like, why do you think they called it Bowery Farming instead of Bowery Farm Uh. or Bowery Farms? I think they. Do you think he likes Jaren's because his name is Irving? Oh yeah, that might be it. That's actually probably the best answer. My answer was worse. <laughs> I was just thinking like that. He talks so much about the systems. I think at some point maybe they and we should have asked him about this in retrospect. But maybe they have designs to sell the systems and technology without doing all the hardware themselves. Because you can tell if you get. I was thinking about that. Yeah, if you if you get to scale and you're like working with some of the major food producers in the world, maybe it makes more sense to be like, we'll give you the method and you guys go ahead and kind of roll. That out. Right. Something active about it too. It's like very in the present. But Bowery um, is farming now. Bowery is yeah, currently farming. And it's not just a place, it's an action. So maybe there's math to that. Yeah. But yeah, I th- I enjoyed the conversation. I kind of couldn't get off the thread of like the collective bargaining power of these companies. Right. And he was like, I don't need any bargaining power. I just, everything's going to die without us. So they'll choose us eventually. But I did think it was an interesting conversation. And it is cool to hear about so many companies that are kind of like taking a different route to the same end goal. Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think that the stuff he brought up, it's true. They're they're in a kind of lucky position in that they're like in a rock and a hard place. It's like, well, you go this way or you don't go at all, basically. But it is interesting that they're going into more active lobbying efforts, both with 
large companies and also with government, right? So I think that should help float all boats that he was kind of alluding to, like Mm -hmm. in that sustainable farming world. So that's pretty cool. But yeah, I think I'm so excited too about the fact that it's providing a real advantage to the consumer that is not just like the same thing, but maybe a bit fresher or whatever or more plentiful. Like it's like, no, 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 there's going to be all kinds of new foods that you're not even used to if this succeeds at scale. Not even new foods, but can you democratize the price of a food that normally you'd have to buy like organic and pesticide free and you couldn't even be sure that it was at the grocery store? Like it's the difference between shopping at Giant and Whole Foods, but getting the same or better product, right? And like that is actually a huge deal because if you think about part of the climate problem, it's not just the supply chain or like the source material. It's the fact that we're going through insane inflation and we have a disappearing middle class and there are massive food deserts out there in the world. And <laughs> so all those things combined mean like even if you're doing it, if you're not doing it at the right price point with the right scale, it doesn't solve a lot of the problem, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I think that hopefully they'll get there eventually. I mean, one of the things that I also wanted to ask him about that we didn't really have time to talk about was... This is the regrets portion of the show. The regrets portion, yeah. But speaking of scale, like, does this model work in, like... He was talking about how demand for food is scaling despite reductions in our ability to produce it. So in terms of, like, arable land and stuff. But, like, the places where that's most extreme are in not in like developed western world it's in like mm-hmm. africa or like india or like right. places where the population continues to boom and all these demands continue to boom and there's like no availability and no money right so like can it scale down to that and start to address some of those problems as well it doesn't seem obvious the reasons why it couldn't but this is one of the things if we're talking about regrets like one of the things that i wish that we had talked to him more about was just like how to stay focused because it does feel like Bowery farming is one of those things where you could probably do a million things, right? Like even in the like 10 minutes that we've been talking about it post facto, Mm -hmm. it's like, I mean, you could white label, you could go global, you could start launching all these random foods people have never heard of, you know, like it's kind of an endless list and companies who do that or have those options tend to get in trouble by trying to bite off more than they can chew, pun intended. So I just, I wish that we had maybe covered that bit too. Well, what else do you feel like we missed? (laughs) Well, I also wanted to ask him if he has plans to make little tiny cows and then stack all the little tiny cows on little paddocks vertically. That Mm, that doesn't feel on brand for him, (laughs) but it is a cute joke. Uh, Well, I wonder if he's vegetarian. I don't know. He was alluding to, listen, all we've established we, There's here so much we don't is know. Is that we need to go we around to with Irving, and we'll probably set that up sometime in the future. But, uh, you know, we'll bring our mics. Yeah. Yeah. When we go to visit the farm, it'll be an on location farm cast. Yeah, special berries. Mm hmm. All right. Well, yeah. I think lots to think about. And that's what Another this portion killer show, Daryl. Of the podcast is for. It's a brain homework for you listeners at home. Yeah. Give it some good thunks and, and come back to us. <laughs> but thanks for joining us. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch news editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch managing editor Jordan Crook. Yashad Kulkarni is our executive producer. We are produced by Maggie Stamitz and edited by Kel Keller. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. 
You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com and you can call us and leave a voicemail at 510-936-1618. Also, we'd love if you could spare a few minutes to fill out our listener survey at bit.ly slash found listener survey. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week. The farming zone. <laughs> Here we are on the pasture. God.